Jewish audio on Torah.org. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Shibogos, sacrifices brought for the commission of inadvertent transgressions, Pedic Shlishi, chapter 3, and the principle of this law is that it has to be inadvertent, it has to be something that is done not intentionally. If two witnesses came and testified about somebody that he committed a transgression upon which the commission would require a sin offering which is a standard sin offering compared to a sliding scale offering which we talked about. So the witnesses say, listen, we saw you, you committed a transgression, you have to bring a sin offering. Needless to say, they did not warn him and tell him, Mister, it is forbidden to do this because had they done that, it would be intentional and he would have punishment associated with it. Ela Amru, what they said was, we observed you, we saw you, for example, that you committed a transgression, you did a labor on Shabbos, or we saw that you ate the forbidden fat from the animal. That's what the witnesses say. They say, we saw you do it. And he says, listen, he says, I know with certainty that I did not do this thing. Now, ordinarily, a person cannot go up against two kosher witnesses. When you have two witnesses that testify, and the person says, I didn't do it, everybody says, I didn't do it. You know anybody who says, I did it? Everybody's innocent. So they said, you did it. He says, I know for sure I didn't do it. Is he required to bring a sin offering? Says, He's not required to bring a sin offering. Wow, why not? Always testimony of witnesses is all powerful. The answer is, because Had he said, I did it intentionally, not unintentionally, he would be exempt from sacrifice, because a sacrifice can only be brought for unintentional transgressions. If he said, I did it intentionally, he would walk. Therefore, when he used other words, and he said, I didn't eat the bat, I didn't commit the transgression, Nase, it becomes Omer, as if he would have said, I didn't eat inadvertently, I ate intentionally. But being that there was no warning, then he's not culpable for punishment. He's also exempt from sacrifice, because it was not inadvertent. It was intentional, and it's not considered that he is contradicting the witnesses, which in halacha you really can't contradict kosher witnesses. So this is actually, from a perspective of a legal mind, it's a very interesting paragraph. The plot thickens, Bayes, Shosak, when he was silent, as we say, ZG, Zuburnished, what if he said nothing? And he did not contradict the witnesses. Earlier he says, I didn't do it, I know for sure. What if he just says nothing? Even if a woman who, in many circumstances, is not considered a kosher witness for the purpose of causing uh, retribution. Women are considered good witnesses to reveal facts, but not in the legal sense. So even if a woman said, We saw you eat fat, forbidden fat. We're not talking about fat with cholesterol. We're talking about forbidden fat, non-kosher. We saw you committed transgression on Shabbos. Or she says, I saw you. And he said nothing. He's obligated now to bring us in offering. Because we're not talking about testimony here, we're talking about revealing, revelation. What if one witness, which again in halacha, is not binding, we need two witnesses in law. What if one witness said, this is forbidden fat. And he said nothing. And then he forgot all about it, ate it inadvertently. Maybe he brings a sin offering. Because now he forgot it. In his way, but if they warned him, he would receive lashes. Even though the main essence of the testimony is one witness, because the one witness came and said, this is Chelev, but two witnesses warned him and saw him, and therefore he can actually be liable for lashes. We already explained earlier in the laws of unfit offerings. Somebody sets aside a sin offering because he ate forbidden fat. He should not bring it. He should not bring it for the Shabbos that he profaned or for the blood that he ate. He should bring his offering, a goat for his sin which he sinned. The sacrifice has to be for the sin. Here he set aside a sacrifice for eating forbidden fat, and he's bringing it for violating Shabbos or for eating blood. That doesn't work. The sacrifice has to be with the intent of the transgression. You can't hop from one sin to the other. Then he could, and if he does bring an offering designated for eating fat, for example, for violating Shabbos, it's not kosher. What if he set aside a sin offering for fat, forbidden fat that he consumed yesterday? He should not bring it for fat that he consumed today, because today is another sin. Yesterday was yesterday, today is today. And if he brought keeper, 
He does make atonement. Needless to say, that if a person's father set aside an offering for a sin offering and then he died. So you have this sin offering walking around. As it happens to be the son committed the same transgression inadvertently. That the son should not bring the father's sin offering for his sin. As we already explained. What if somebody delivers, he brings a sin offering to cover two sins, two inadvertent transgressions. What does the law say? The law says one sin offering per transgression. You have two transgressions, you need two sin offerings. He wants to get the hip off. He wants wholesale. That's a problem. What should happen? Tira, this animal should be allowed to pasture and it should be sold. And because he designated this for two transgressions, and sin offerings could be brought a day later, and two days later, he takes half the money and designates it for one transgression, half the money for the second transgression. So that's the way this animal covers two transgressions. Or two people bring one sin offering in partnership, but they each sinned. Tira, it should pasture and it should develop a blemish, the timach should be sold, and again we talked many times that blemishes are not necessarily major defects in the animal. Halakhic blemishes could be very refined, like even a split in the lip, therefore it would not take away from the value of selling it. Still is worth a lot of money. And each of the people should bring their sin offering with half the money. What if he brings two sin offerings for one sin? So now you have an extra animal. What do you do? So what you do is you offer either of them. Up to you. On the second, Tira should pastor. And its money should go to buy a free will offering because it's holy. But it's not a sin offering. We've learned in the past repeatedly every sin offering needs a sin. And if there's no sin, there can't be a sin offering. What do you do? Well, it's, it's very problematic. In this situation, you can take the money and buy a free will offering. What if he brought two sin offerings for two sins? One should be slaughtered for one sin. And the second for the second sin. It makes no difference that there was confusion. There was two sin offerings for two sins. He just picks one for one sin and one for another sin, and it's no problem. Zayin Karbiyarno Behilchas Masakabonis 7. We've already explained in the laws of procedural practices of sacrifices. That if somebody is well known as a, an apostate, a heretic, with regard to idol worship, he's a known idol worshiper, or he's known to publicly profane Shabbos, meaning, He's known to stand in front of ten people or more and just say, I don't care, I am going to profane the Shabbos. We're not talking about somebody who sneaks in a sin here and there. We're talking about somebody who's intentionally making a statement publicly. He says, I don't do this. We may not receive a sacrifice from him at all because these two transgressions, transgression number one, idol worship, transgression number two, public, wanton desecration of Shabbos, cause a person not to be able to bring any sacrifices for inadvertent transgression. However, if somebody is known to be an apostate or a heretic or a repeat violator, for a particular sin, any of the other 611 transgressions, poetically speaking, we may not receive from him, we may not accept a sin offering for that sin, but for other sins it's okay. It's only the two sins of public wanton Shabbos desecration and idol worship that disqualify a person from bringing any offering. However, uh, repeat public transgression of a particular commandment only disqualifies a person from bringing an offering for an inadvertent transgression of that commandment. Ketzat, for example. What if somebody is known <coughs> that he is an apostate, he's a heretic, when it comes to eating forbidden fat, he doesn't keep that commandment. And then this person went and inadvertently ate forbidden fat. And he brought a sin offering. We cannot accept this sin offering because this is a mitzvah that he wantonly violates. Even if he was known to be a heretic and he intentionally eats forbidden fat because he likes it. He says, there's no fat like forbidden fat. You haven't tasted fat, but you tasted the forbidden fat. I don't care about the law. And another time, he was thinking that he was eating kosher fat. And in fact, he consumed the non-kosher fat, but he didn't know that he did. So he brings an offering in the and we, in the base of we may not accept it from him. Because once a person eats forbidden fat, for example, wantonly and intentionally, and there are two ways, and this is important. I'm going to get into it in other laws. There are two ways, we covered it already actually, in other laws. There are two ways that a person can repeatedly commit the transgression intentionally. One is lahachis. Lahachis means to anger God, to make a statement. I don't care. That's lahachis, to create anger. The other way is he can't control himself. He loves forbidden fat. They're two different. There are two different motives, two different motives for the transgression, but they're severe. In any event, whether it is to anger God or whether it is because he's a glutton, this is considered a mummer. What's a mummer? A heretic. For that sin. An apostate. What if he was a mummer? 
he was a declared apostate when it came to eating fat, forbidden fat. Veshogag, and he forgot inadvertently. Vachaldam, and for the first time in his life, he ate blood, which is forbidden. He never eats blood. Mekablin, mimenu, here, we do receive transgression for blood. As we explained, Ches, Misha Shogag, someone who inadvertently erred, sinned. And he set aside a sin offering. And then, after he set aside a sin offering, he became a declared apostate. And then he repented. So at the time he set aside a sacrifice, all was good. Then he became an apostate. Then he repented, and once again, all was good. So what's the deal? Does he lose the option to bring the sacrifice? Because there was a period in the middle where he was an apostate. Hey, another example in Halacha Nishtata, he lost his mental acuity. He became mentally imbalanced. And then he healed and recovered. Even though clearly in both these examples, the offering becomes off limits temporarily for the moment that he was the apostate or for the moment that he wasn't well but then he can return and it works and here is this rule that we've repeated again and again that an animal can never permanently be pushed off and say it's not kosher today it's not kosher but tomorrow situations change it could be accepted in this case today the person could not bring the offering so the animal cannot be brought tomorrow it's good as we explained in the laws of unfit offerings, the people, he may offer it. Just as if the animal, for example, had developed a transient or passing blemish. When the animal's blemish departs, it returns and reverts back to its status of kosher. If the owners become pushed away temporarily because of an outside situation, because of a needle and now they're fit again, the animal may be offered. Now we segue into an interesting section which connects to the festival of Yom Kippur. Somebody was obligated to bring a sin offering. Somebody was obligated to bring a guilt offering of certainty. We know when it comes to guilt offerings, there are several types. There is a guilt offering of certainty for certain transgressions, and then there is a guilt offering which is asham toli. It's conditional. It's a maybe. I did do it. I didn't do it. In any event, people who are obligated to bring these offerings, shalva aleim yom hakipurim, from the time the sin was committed and the obligation kicked in until they brought it, there was yom kippur in the middle. Isn't yom kippur the day of atonement? That's what it says in my prayer book. Chayovin lahavi laachar yom hakipurim. Still. A sin offering or a guilt offering still has to be brought after Yom Kippur. The fact that Yom Kippur passed in the middle does not exempt the person from bringing the offering that he was obligated to bring before Yom Kippur. However, if somebody is obligated to bring in an uncertain guilt offering, he's not sure if he did commit the sin or he didn't, turn him. This person, because he's in a state of quandary, he's not sure. He's now exempt because of the Yom Kippur experience. Shanamar, because it says in the verse regarding Yom Kippur, regarding the Day of Atonement, from all of your transgression, transgressions, lift nay, Hashem, before God, you shall be purified. The words lift nay, Hashem, before God, allude to us and teach us that any sin that only God knows, as in this case, he himself is not sure whether you committed the transgression or not. If you ask him, tell me the truth, did you commit the transgression or not? He says, hey, only God knows. is forgiven. That's because it's a conditional guilt offering. If somebody is in doubt as to whether we committed a transgression or not, on Yom Kippur, even at dark, even at nightfall, he's exempt from having to bring this conditional guilt offering, because the entire day of Yom Kippur brings about forgiveness, atonement. So being that he experienced Yom Kippur, he receives the atonement. Names Islam, so we learn, we don't bring on a sin where one is not sure whether one committed or not a conditional guilt offering unless the Yom Kippur experience simply cannot bring atonement for him. How could it be that the Yom Kippur experience simply cannot bring atonement for him? I'm glad you asked. The answer is in number 10. When we talk about Yom Kippur bringing atonement, and this is an important rule for any Jew who wants to observe Yom Kippur properly, Yom Kippur cannot atone, and a sin offering cannot atone, and a guilt offering cannot atone, only on those who repent and who believe that this experience will generate atonement. And actually, this is a big debate <coughs> between our sages, where Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi maintains that Yom Kippur, is powerful enough to generate atonement, even if the person does not repent. So there's a lot of discussion, but according to the Rambam here, the person has to repent. Ketzad, for example, what if he was rebelling, kicking against the whole system, nevertheless, he brought a sin offering. Oh, yeah, show me guilt offering. Yet he says, he verbalizes, or he thinks in his heart, yeah, this is a bunch of hocus pocus, it doesn't do atonement, and he doesn't believe in the whole thing. Even though everything was offered, meticulously following by the rules, he's not forgiven. Why? Because verbally, or in his heart, he made a statement saying, ah, it's not true. 
He was rebellious. So when you rebel against the product, the product can't help you. When you rebel against the act, the act can't help you. And when he returns to the right path and he repents from his rebellion, he must once again offer his sin offering or his guilt offering because the first time around didn't count because he didn't believe in what he was doing. And so also, if someone rebels against the whole idea of Yom Kippur, ah, the whole idea of Yom Kippur, he says, that's a bubble it's, uh, it's not true. Yom Kippur doesn't forgive, it doesn't make atonement, it's nothing. Then, in Yom Kippur, if that's what he believes, then that comes true. Be careful what you wish for. Then Yom Kippur does not make atonement for him. If he's obligated to bring and then he's obligated to bring this conditional guilt offering. And Yom Kippur comes in the middle, which we learned exempts him from this conditional burnt offering, uh, guilt offering. But he's rebelling against the whole idea of Yom Kippur. Then Yom Kippur didn't help him, and he still has to bring this conditional guilt offering. And when he repents, he has to bring any conditional guilt offering that he still has to bring. The Rebbe talks about this extensively, and the Rebbe stresses the idea of Itzumi Shoyoyim Mechaper, that just the idea of Yom Kippur brings atonement. And uh, again, there's a lot of debate here, and this is the Rambam's statement. All guilt offerings that the Torah talks about, as a rule, if somebody does not bring the guilt offering, it stops the full process of atonement from occurring. Chutz, there are some exceptions. One of the exceptions. May Asham Nozir, the guilt offering of a Nozir, which has nothing to do with atonement. Speak Nozir, if somebody's in doubt whether he became impure, I believe it means, as a Nozir or not. Or speak Mechusri Kapora. There is a person who still has to meet the full process of atonement. This refers to people who have a flow, Zabim, Zabos, a woman after childbirth, a person affected by Saras. If we're not sure, speak Satan, an adulterous woman, we're not sure if she committed adultery or not. Kulam, Mabim, Kabrisim, Achayim, Kippur. All of these, the doubt is not removed by the Yom Kippur experience. They all have to bring their offering after Yom Kippur. You'd well. The closing paragraph of this chapter. If somebody's obligated to bring a sin offering or a guilt offering, in the meantime, he also committed a very serious transgression and was found guilty of a very serious violation and was given the death penalty. They're taking him out to kill him. And at the same time, his offering is being offered to him. Do we kill him, regardless of the fact that a sin offering is being offered to him, a guilt offering is being offered, or do we say, hey, this guy's got much bigger problems than an inadvertent transgression? So the answer is, if his offering was already offered, then let's wait another few minutes until the Kohen will dash or sprinkle the blood, bringing the atonement process full circle. Then he'll be killed. At least he'll have one last transgression on his plate. However, if the offering was not even slaughtered yet, but it's going to be slaughtered, and we don't make him wait, actually, until they offer it. And it's interesting that he brings down that the reason they don't make him wait is because we're not permitted to delay an execution because it's very cruel to the person who's going to be executed to say you're going to be executed and then you're not going to be executed and so on and so forth. It can freak the person out. That is the reason that we move forward. It's called Inui Hadim that we not cause him to suffer from this delay. End of chapter 3. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, Shigogais, the laws of sacrifices concerning inadvertent negative transgressions. Pedic Revi'i, chapter 4. We know that the transgression that is committed has to meet certain conditions. One of them is that the person has to be unaware of the fact that he did it or that that deed is forbidden or what have you. So now he goes on to say, describing various scenarios, if somebody commits many different transgressions, but he is in one long state of unawareness, which means the state of unawareness is one, but the transgressions are many. He is liable to bring a sin offering for every single transgression independently. One sin offering per sin. It doesn't only mean two or three. Afilo also in the very beginning of this section, the Rambam enumerated 43 different transgressions for which a sin offering can come. Even if the person committed every one of the 43 transgressions, as long as it was in one single state of unawareness, he is liable for 43 sin offerings. Why? Because they are different sins. Because they are different transgressions. Even though the not knowing was one. Along the same lines, similarly speaking, if he did one deed, if he committed one deed, which makes him liable. Mishum Shem Meis Harbei, for many different names of transgressions, one deed, many sins. Chayav al kol shame b'shem. He is liable for every single name of every single transgression, a separate violation, a separate sin offering. Behu provided that, as we learned many times, 
that all of these prohibitions either came, kulon, boy, they all entered simultaneously, which is why he's liable to bring a sin offering for every single transgression, because they all hit him at the same time. Hey, or another possibility is, as we learned earlier, again and again, isur, meisif, if the new transgression adds a new prohibition, which was not there before in general terms, or isur, kailo, or it's an all-incorporating, all-encompassing prohibition. Ketzad, now he spells it out. For example, if somebody slaughters an animal, which is of the holy, meaning a holy sacrificial animal, but he slaughters it not in the temple courtyard where Jews slaughter sacrifices, but he slaughters it outside the courtyard. That's one transgression. Sacrificing, slaughtering an animal, which is a sacrifice, outside the courtyard. And to complicate it, the plot thickens, Bishabbos, it was on Shabbos. So certain sacrifices could be brought on Shabbos. But a non-sacrifice, you can't kill an animal on Shabbos. That's a second violation. He's worshipping an idol, he's serving an idol while he's doing it. So he's got three transgressions. He's offering sacrifices outside the courtyard, that's one. On Shabbos, that's two. To an idol, that's three. He's liable for three different sin offerings. Why? One transgression he inadvertently violated. Remember, all of this is inadvertent. Because he is slaughtering sacrifices outside the courtyard. Two, he's violating Shabbos. Three, he's also worshipping an idol, serving an idol. All without awareness, without cognizance. Because in this particular scenario, all three prohibitions collide, coincide, come at the same time. When is the above statement correct that all three prohibitions hit at the same time? If he says, if he makes a statement and says, you know when I'm going to start worshipping the idol? As soon as I'm done slaughtering it. That's when I start worshipping. But if his intent was not that he's going to start worshipping the idol and he's done slaughtering it, but as he's slaughtering it, then we have a problem. Because as soon as he begins slaughtering it, even a slight nick, it already becomes idolatrous and idolatry kicks in before anything else. So by the time the other two transgressions kick in, he's already transgressing idolatry. And you can't say that slaughtering outside the courtyard would kick in, because that doesn't kick in until he will slaughter both signs. There are two signs that we have to cut. You have the kona and the beishet. The windpipe and the esophagus have to be cut in order for shechita to take place, in order for slaughter. Idolatry takes place at the very beginning, at the first level of cut. By the time he finishes slaughtering, he slaughtered an animal that can no longer be brought as an offering. Therefore, he can't violate the transgression of bringing an offering outside the courtyard because it's not an offering anymore. It's idolatrous, it can't be an offering. Because something that's not fit for an offering is not forbidden to be slaughtered outside the courtyard. Commission Bianca has explained. However, if it was the sin offering of a fowl, of a dove, by a we learned earlier that if half the windpipe was cut by and he added even slight, slight amount for the sake of idol worship, here he would be liable for three sin offerings because as he cuts a, a slight amount, he makes it more than half. So he's soon in Boyanka, because over here all three prohibitions kick in at the same time because the slightest cut is the cut that makes it a kosher slaughter, so to speak. Along the same lines, if somebody commits labor, forbidden on Yom Kippur and Shabbos, when Yom Kippur falls on Shabbos, sometimes Yom Kippur falls on a Shabbos, if he does that act on a Yom Kippur that falls on Shabbos, inadvertent transgression will translate into the obligation of two sin offerings, because the two prohibitions will come upon him simultaneously, the Shabbos and the Yom Kippur. Similarly speaking, if somebody is intimate with his brother's wife, who is alive, which means the brother's wife, if the brother died, that's called Yibam, that's the letter right marriage, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about his brother's alive and well, and he's married, and he has intimacy with his brother's wife. He should need a while, she's in a state of menstruation. So there's three transgressions coming simultaneously. Maybe Shalish Katois. What are the three transgressions which culminate in the obligation of three sin offerings? One act, three sin offerings. Number one, Mishim Eshish, because she's the wife of another man. Or Mishim Eshish, number two, she's the wife of his brother. And they come simultaneously. The act of intimacy brings them both in simultaneously. Or Mishim Nida, and also because she's in her state of menstruation. That's three. Shahu Yisra Mishim Nida becomes an additional prohibition in this scenario. Because the prohibition of Nida would even be for her husband. In addition, for a brother in law. So here's an example of a prohibition that come together. That's somebody's wife and his brother's wife, the additional prohibition which is Nida, the menstrual one. All other scenarios would be the same. Another example, if somebody is intimate with his own father, and again, he's unaware, we're talking about inadvertent transgression, he's unaware that it's prohibited or whatever the situation is. So here, he's obligated to bring two sin offerings, 
One is the Torah says, do not uncover the nakedness of your father, and it also means literally having relations with one's father. And the other one is Mishum Bezoch Alishishka, not having relations with the same sex. And so also, if somebody is intimate with his father's brother, there are two violations here, resulting in two sin offering requirements. The nakedness of your father's brother you shall not uncover. And therefore, we have again two the father's brother and the violation of a man being intimate with another man. What if somebody has relations with a male? And at the same time, he has the male come upon him. Depends which one is the dominant one, which one is the recipient. What if he does both? Behelam achas, and in one state of unawareness. And even though in one case, one man penetrates the other. In the other case, the other man penetrates him. These are two acts. However, they are a similar act. They're both the act of a male cohabitating with a male. There's only one sin offering that has to be brought when it was committed inadvertently. Because the Torah tells us one mitzvah. You shall not sleep with a male. Whether one is the one who penetrates. Whether the one who is penetrated. It's one term which the Torah uses. So it's one transgression. So it's one sin offering. Even though he committed both acts. But the same law applies. When a person is intimate with an animal. Or the animal penetrates him. In one state of unawareness. It's all one transgression no matter which way it went. The Torah considers both scenarios as one. When it comes to a male being intimate with a male. And a human being intimate with an animal. Whether one is the one who penetrates or is penetrated. The Torah considers it one transgression. Based two. Okay, now you've got to really put your thinking cap on, and I hope somebody's good at uh, math or family dynamics. Yesh, Bayobila, Hazarambam tells us a fascinating example. It's possible for a person to commit one act of intimacy, and if it was all in a state of unawareness, if he didn't realize it, didn't know what's prohibited, or didn't know whatever the situation was, if it was inadvertent, he has to bring eight sin offerings. How could that be? Because he committed eight violations. One act of intimacy, eight violations. That's talent. Ketzad, so the Rambam spells it out. Yaakov, there's a fellow named Yaakov, and again, he uses biblical names just for reference. Yaakov, who had a daughter... Mizilpa of his wife Zilpa, Ushma, and this daughter's name was Timna. Nasa Lavon, Lavon, who is Yaakov's father-in-law, married Timna, Vehelad Mimenabas, and Lavon and Timna, Timna is Lavon's granddaughter. Lavon and Timna had an offspring, a daughter Ushma Serach, and they named her Serach. And this scenario, this fellow Lavon only has one daughter Rachel, Nimsus. So therefore, what we have here is that Serach is this little girl Serach is Bas Bas Yaakov is the daughter of Yaakov's daughter, because Yaakov's daughter was Timna, and Timna's daughter was Serach. Vachis Ishta is also she's also the sister of his wife. Why? Because Lavan is his father-in-law, and Lavan is the father. May Aviya from her father. Here you have two prohibitions that collide. The plot thickens Nisa Serach Lerubin. What if Serach married Rubin? Manasra Al Shabanayaka. By marrying Rubin, she is not forbidden to any one of her husband's brothers. All of Yaakov's sons are forbidden to be intimate with her. There's another prohibition for Yaakov. Why? The other prohibition is in addition to everything else. In addition to being his granddaughter, Serach is now his daughter-in-law. She's his daughter-in-law. Mace Ruben Ruben died. A gay rush, or he divorced her. Venisa Serach Zuh, and this Serach was married. Lachi Yaakov to Yaakov's Be'imo, maternal brother. Because she was forbidden. And all the other brothers of Yaakov, they said, Yaakov Yisur. Yaakov now has another prohibition. Ashes of him. But she is the wife of his brother. Mace, a gay rush. What if he died? Or divorced her. Venisa Serach Zuh, and this Serach was married to Yishmoel to Yishmoel. Because she becomes prohibited on all Yishmoel's brothers. Now Yaakov has another prohibition. Because she's now the wife of his father, Yitzchak's brother. And now she becomes a Leverite woman, candidate for his father Yitzchak. transgressed and performed a Leverite marriage, even though it is prohibited as a secondary relationship. Because she's forbidden on all the other brothers. There's another prohibition for Yaakov. She's now the wife of his father and the wife of a man. Where they both come together. Now, having said all of that, while she was in her state of menstrual, in the lifetime of her father, of her husband Yitzchak, while Rachel Yaakov's wife is still living, this is a complex scenario. 
Mary, when he has to now bring eight sin offerings. Mishum Basdika, because she is first and foremost his daughter's daughter. Mishum Achais Ishtai, she is also the sister of his wife, because her father was Lavan. Mishum Kalosi, she is also his daughter-in-law. Mishum Eishes Ovid, she is also the brother, the wife of his brother. Mishum Eishes Achi Ovid, she is the wife of his father's brother Yishmael. Mishum Eishes Ovid, she is his father's wife because of the Levite situation. Mishum Eishes Ish, she is somebody's wife. Mishum Nidon, she is in her menstrual cycle. Eight transgressions for one deed. That's called wholesale. We can figure out other similar scenarios, but this is the scenario which the Rambam brings down. From the oral law. Dalid, Next scenario, somebody was married to three different women. And he was intimate with the mother of one of them. The mother he was intimate with happens to be the mother's mother of his second wife. So happens to be the mother of the father of his third wife. Even though this old woman, is his mother-in-law, and the mother of his mother-in-law, and the mother of his father-in-law, and they have three different names. Mother-in-law, mother-in-law's mother, father-in-law's mother. It's one. Prohibition and chayvel chatosi lefishen amar bishulbita because the verse lumps them all together. It says with regard to a woman and her daughter, or bas bina the son, the daughter of her son, or bas bita and the daughter of her daughter. Shara heinozim ohidus is lewd and forbidden. Akasa bas shleisha gufin beguf echad. In the verse, the Torah limps all these scenarios together. But because therefore, in this case, yechoshul they will all be considered. Hashleisha shemus the three different names of the transgressions: mother-in-law, mother-in-law's mother, father-in-law's mother. Yishem echad has one because the Torah lumps it together. Hey five, the final paragraph in this chapter. Abel, however, abo alachaisa if somebody is intimate with his own sister, shehi achais aviv his paternal sister, shehi achais imay his maternal sister. He violated three violations. He uncovered the nakedness of his sister. One is the prohibition of being intimate with his sister. Even though she is the sister of his mother and the sister of his father. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Let's start again. If somebody's intimate with his own sister, she who happens to be also his father's sister. Also his mother's sister. He has three violations. He uncovered the nakedness of his own sister. So he has number one, being intimate with his sister. Even though she is also the sister of his mother, also the sister of his father. How can this scenario be? That somebody should be intimate with his own sister, and she should also be his father's sister, and also be his mother's sister. That's complicated. For sure you need a computer to figure that one out. So here the this person was intimate with his own mother. And his own mother gave birth to him. She had two daughters. And he was intimate with one of his own daughters. And she had a son from him. When this illegitimate son, which was the byproduct of his relationship with one of his daughters, has a relationship with the other daughter, first of all, she is the sister of his mother, who is an illegitimate child. She's also the sister of his own father. She's the sister of his mother's father. Here we have three sin offerings that are obligated to be brought. So also any similar scenario. End of chapter 4. Rambam. Hilchesh Gogeis, the laws of inadvertent transgressions, which means transgressions that people committed without knowledge that they're committing a transgression. Peter Kamishi, chapter 5, and before we go into chapter 5, it was brought to my attention by one of our diligent students that in the previous chapter, chapter 4, I inadvertently, so if the Besamdik understood, I'd probably have to bring a sacrifice. I inadvertently omitted paragraph 3. So let's go back to paragraph 3 of chapter 4. Jack. Gimel, call Elo, all of the above mentioned. Shete Aser Zuha Erba Aleim Be'isar all the above situations where this relationship becomes prohibited because it adds a new, re- a new prohibition and that's one of the conditions that are required. There has to be real people who this prohibition would affect existent in the world, not good enough for theoretical people. And being that, the real people would find this prohibition upon them. Now this new prohibition can come upon this same person as well and they could be liable for more than one offering. But if they don't exist in the world, we don't say, we don't do it in theory. If this one would have had sons, or if this one would have had brothers, so it would be forbidden. You taste the there would be a prohibition for the old man. Because right now there is no son and there is no brother, and theoretical doesn't count. The same law applies for any similar scenario. There's an adorable story they tell of a great, uh, I guess it's a rabbi or, or, or teacher, who always talked about how important children were and how we have to be kind to children and good to children and loving to children. And one day they poured new cement in front of his house, a new sidewalk, and he found a bunch of neighborhood children dancing in the cement. He walks out, he starts screaming with anger, "What are you doing?" 
Somebody walks over to him and says, you're the person who's always lecturing about how, we, how, how grateful we have to be for children. He says, let me explain it to you. I love children in theory, not in the concrete. Okay, Perek Hamishi, chapter 5. So there are relatives in theory and there are relatives in concrete. We now move along to chapter 5, now that I corrected the omission, the sin of omission of missing paragraph 3 in the previous chapter 4. Chapter 5. What if somebody was intimate with a forbidden relative or a forbidden prohibited relationship many times, but the lack of awareness of this prohibition was one long lack of awareness. Even though many days could have elapsed between one act of intimacy and the other, that he didn't know in between that this was forbidden. And it's one body. It's all one transgression. And there would only be one sin offering required. So, this is the halacha. One person, many times. I guess I didn't research this, but on one foot, if somebody has a repetitive relationship with a woman, and then, after many, many acts of intimacy, finds out that this woman is in fact his sister. And he had no idea she was his sister. That's an example. Avol, however, in Shogagbo, if he committed an inadvertent transgression, once. And then he found out that it was a transgression. Once again, he forgot. Again, he committed the transgression. And then he found out again about the prohibition. And again, he forgot and was intimate with her. So three times. Each time he forgot. Here he is obligated to bring a sin offering for each act of intimacy. Because once he finds out, that causes a distinction and makes it a separate entity. What if somebody is intimate with a woman many times, but his state of unawareness was one long one? He didn't know. All these times he had no idea. However, that's as far as he is concerned. The Zuhani Bell is but the woman who is the other party of this intimacy. She knew very well. In between every act of intimacy, she was told about this prohibition. However, it comes out. So therefore, what happens is we have, in her case, the various different act of intimacies for her. There were many different cases of not knowing, and then knowing, and not knowing, and then not know- and knowing. But for him, it was one long case of not knowing. So what's the deal? Who may be Being that it was one long case of inadvertent acts on his part, he only has to bring one sin offering. He, but she, may be a She must bring a separate sin offering for every act of intimacy, because she found out in between. He had many... Knowledge is in between. The opposite, and for her, it was one long act of not knowing. So who maybe? He brings many sin offerings. And she brings only one. What if he was intimate with many different prohibited relationships in one long state of unawareness? Even though they all have one name, they're other bodies. He's liable for a sin offering for every separate entity. For example, a man had five wives, and he was intimate with every one of them while they were in a state of menstruation. So they're all called wife. They're all called menstruation, but they're five different acts. And he didn't know that having intimacy with a woman in a state of menstruation is forbidden. Or he was intimate with five of his sisters, so he committed five prohibited acts of being intimate with sister, but they had five different sisters. Or daughters. And all of them were in a state of not knowing. One long state of not knowing. Nevertheless, they are five different entities. Chayavis. Liable to bring a separate sin offering. For every single one of them. And from here we learn. That that which we learned earlier. Our sages have said. That if somebody has a relationship, if a male has a relationship with a male, and he's the one that is penetrating, or a male has a relationship with a male who penetrates him, in one state of not knowing, we just learned that there's only one sin offering, because the prohibition is one, when does this apply, that no matter who penetrates, it's one prohibition, when it's one male, but if it was another male, and another male, no matter how it came down, who penetrated who, there's another prohibition, and another liability of sacrifice, for every single person, for every single other person for every single intimacy. The same law applies when one is intimate with an animal. No matter who penetrates who. A woman who had many animals penetrate her, but she had no idea all along that this was a prohibition. 
If it was in a state of not knowing inadvertent transgression, she's liable to bring a sin offering for each and every act. Why? Because there were many animals. Because there are different bodies. There's animal A, B, C, D. This would be similar to a woman who was intimate with many men in one state of not knowing that intimacy is forbidden outside of a... Or that forbidden intimacy is forbidden. Being that it was inadvertent, she's obligated to bring a sin offering for every single man that she was intimate with. Hey, five. A woman whose husband went across the ocean. Today, across the ocean involves certain dangers. Back then, it was the end of the world. She heard a rumor that he died. So witnesses came and testified that she died. That he died. So her husband is no more. And he says, and she remarried. May not be asked whether she decided. Hey, my husband is gone. I might as well be married. May not be best. No, she went to a reliable court, and the court decided halachically that she may remarry because the witnesses testified or what have you. It was all done by the book. Then one day she finds out. He comes into the door one day and says, "Honey, I'm home." Her husband is alive. She's obligated to bring one offering because this was all in a state of one unawareness. She was unaware that he was alive. What if she married in the interim many men? So it was more than one man, more than one body. She committed adultery with many men outside of marriage. makes no difference, but it's many men. Here she's obligated to bring a sin offering for each and every relationship. The same rule, because they are different entities. Even though it's all one case of not knowing. She didn't know her husband was alive and she played by the book. Not that she did anything wrong. But she didn't know. What if somebody is intimate with a woman in a state of menstruation, inadvertently? And then she went through the process, became pure. And she saw signs of menstruation. And in the same state of not knowing he was intimate with her a second time, he is liable for a different sin offering for every time. Even though it's one state of unawareness, and he is one entity, she is one entity. Because the time of one menstrual cycle is set apart and different from another menstrual cycle. So you have not the person that's different, but the cycle that's different. So it's like two separate women. By the way, I want to just interrupt for a second and say that one of our students here asked a very good question just before we began this class. How is it possible? How are all these weird scenarios possible that all these things happened a person didn't know? So I'm reminded, my father of blessed memory taught a class in Mishnah every day, every morning for many, many years in his shul. He went through the Mishnahis many times. As he was studying the section of ritual purity and impurity, he was studying about a man who was on a tree and jumped to another tree and there was a grave underneath on the ground. Is he defiled or is he not defiled? There was a very nice, simple man sitting, sitting in the class and said, Rabbi, I don't understand. People did crazy things back then just to become defiled. So my father explained, it's not that people did crazy things back then just to become defiled. The Mishnah is a body of law. The body of law has to give us different scenarios in order to explain if this scenario could happen, even though it might never happen. What is the law? And the same thing goes here. Whether these stories ever happened or they didn't happen, this is a halakha. We need to know if it's one body or two bodies. One transgression, two transgressions. One sacrifice, two sacrifices. Whether it happened or not is completely and totally irrelevant. Okay, moving right along. Six, paragraph vov. Moving right along in the laws of inadvertent transgressions and associated sin offerings. What if somebody's intimate with his own wife during the permissible time? It's not the time of her cycle, so everything is good. But in the middle of intimacy, she knows that she saw blood, which creates a problem. As we learned in great detail in the laws of the menstruating woman. This situation does not even mandate the bringing of a sin offering, because this is not an inadvertent transgression. It's a lot less than that. It's something beyond his control completely. An inadvertent transgression means that had you known, you would have said, he had nothing to know. He did everything kosher. This is more like out of his control completely, called ones, like an accident. Not inadvertent. Because this was something that no matter what he could have done, he couldn't have done anything. Because if somebody transgresses in a state of being inadvertent, had he researched more, had he known more, he could have known better. Like in the California DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, he gets stopped by a policeman, and he says, you violated a traffic law. I'm so sorry, I didn't know. They say, ignorance is no excuse. You should have studied the book. You don't know. I can't read. Not reading is no excuse. You got to know. You don't know the laws of traffic. Don't drive. So inadvertent means you didn't research enough. Had you researched more, you might have known. The Elo Badak Yafa had he really, really examined again and again, and asked a lot of people a lot of questions. Perhaps this inadvertent act would have never happened. Well, officially, thought of the Bishop Hakira being that he didn't investigate, being that he didn't ask and cross examine Nakakah Yasa, and then he did. He just did without cross examining, without exhaustive investigation. So that's why he needs atonement. Not his fault, but it's uh, inadvertently his fault. 
Abelzeb, but this case where he did everything right, he was intimate with his own wife during the right time. She wasn't expecting her cycle. Mali losses, what could he do? So she was halakhically 100% pure. Mishra Lebishah's messed up all, and it was not at the time where she would even expect to see it. Therefore, ain zeh, ela eines. Therefore, this can only be considered something that is pure and simple, out of his control, no culpability whatsoever. Whether the blood was seen on the cloth that he used after intimacy or on the cloth that she used after intimacy, to him, they are not liable to bring a sacrifice because it was not inadvertent, it was out of their control. That is, if everything was done by the book. But if he transgressed, and was intimate with her, a little too close to the time when she was expecting her cycle, and there are laws as to how we have to be cautious, and he really, really went a little too close to the border. The demon imagined she evolved that he would be able to Engage in intimacy. The equation he would be able to withdraw and separate. Kaidim Shitira done before the blood would be visible. And he was wrong. He planned it right, but he was wrong. And they did. She did see blood during intimacy. Here, this is a case of inadvertent transgression. There's a culpability and obligation to bring a sacrifice. Because this is considered an inadvertent transgression. By the way, therefore, by rabbinic law, we have to keep certain distances. We have to stop relations a little bit before that time. Therefore, if the blood was located on the cloth that he used following intimacy, they're both impure. They're both obligated to bring an offering. But if it's on the cloth that she used, so it's not necessarily that he was involved because there was nothing on his cloth. If she used the cloth immediately after relations, then they're both impure. And they both have to bring a sacrifice because obviously it was at that moment. But she waited. And she waited until she would put her hand under the pillow or under the blanket or whatever it is. And she'll take the cloth to check with it. And then she cleansed herself. Then they're both impure in doubt and they're exempt from a sacrifice because time went by. She waited long enough for her to come down from the bed. And wash herself. Then she cleansed herself with the cloth. And she found blood. By clearly, he is pure because he was not involved in this sight of blood. This seventh and last paragraph of chapter 5. What if a man was intimate with his wife too close to the moment when she was expecting her menstrual cycle, intending, I'm sorry, and the woman felt that she became defiled, she became impure. At the moment of intimacy, she said to him, I feel that I have now become impure. So now the intimacy is ongoing. And this is a very famous halacha in the laws of intimacy. So they're now being intimate at this moment when she says, I have a problem. I just felt blood. So the halacha is, he may not withdraw while he's in a state of being erect. As we explained in great detail in the section of the prohibited intimacies. Because that withdrawal will also give pleasure and it is forbidden to have that pleasure in a state of menstrual impurity. What if he didn't know that he's not allowed to withdraw until the erection subsides? And he did. So again, these are the laws of sacrifices for inadvertent transgression. That's all we're interested in this section. That's all we're interested in in this section. He's obligated to bring two sin offerings because he didn't know that withdrawal was prohibited in that state. First of all, he should have never entered. Because he was intimate with a woman in a state of menstruation unbeknownst to him. And then the withdrawal was also in a way that it was forbidden, as mentioned. Because the pleasure derived in the withdrawal is the same as the pleasure derived in the entry. Therefore, they're both prohibited. When he knew that it was forbidden to be intimate during her cycle, and he imagined he would be able to complete the act before the cycle would come on. He had no idea that it is prohibited to withdraw immediately. So he has two acts of being unaware in these two acts. Abel, however, if he didn't know that intimacy is forbidden during the menstrual cycle, and if a situation like this occurs, he also did not know that withdrawal in that state was prohibited, even though he did withdraw in that state, and that's prohibited, because his unawareness was one, he's only culpable, liable for one sin offering. Because the entering and withdrawal, which for all practical purposes are like two acts of intimacy, they're all in one state of not knowing. And in one state of concealment, he perpetrated both acts. <coughs> This is between husband and wife. The same would be true with any other prohibited intimacy. Shimshogag, that he inadvertently 
with a forbidden relationship, thinking it was a permissible relationship. And then he found out, whoops, this is a forbidden relationship. And he's in the middle of the act of intimacy. And the pleasure associated with it is the same as the entry. He didn't know that one is prohibited from withdrawing immediately. And he did while he's in a state. Uh, as such, a nachayev, as mentioned before, a nachayev el achatas achas. He's only culpable to bring one sin offering shahakel shgoga achasi because it's all one long state of unawareness. End of chapter five. Well, 